G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on a smartphone or generic fruit-based device, and we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. We don't ask for much return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, you can leave different star reviews for different podcasts. So uh, today, joining, joining by myself um, via the internet is... Uh, Professor Ross Bond. So, uh, Professor Bond, thank you very much for for joining us today. Pleasure. Um, and what we thought we'd uh, talk to you about would be your your one of your particular interests. I know I know you have uh, quite quite a, quite a few, but to talk about pyoderma, um, I suppose specifically maybe in in dogs and cats, but maybe um, maybe more in in dogs. So so maybe Ross could ask about. Um, uh, do, do you think diagnosing pyoderma is is quite a simple thing to do? Um, no, not necessarily. But of course, there are two aspects in pyoderma cases always. One is recognising whether a dog, mainly dogs, we'll, we'll talk mainly about dogs, I think, at this point, recognising whether a dog has a pyoderma or not. But of course, the other aspect classically is, why is it there? Um, because the, the usual bacterial pathogen which causes this, Staphylococcus pseudintermediates, is a normal inhabitant of healthy canine skin and mucosa. And for this organism to transition from a commensal uh, into an opportunistic pathogen, then there has to be some disturbance and impairment of the skin immune system in the broadest sense. So uh, it is frequently the case that pyoderma is superimposed on other diseases. Um, and in many presentations, we'll have lesions which are a consequence of pyoderma and the evolution of those lesions of pyoderma superimposed on lesions of other underlying concurrent diseases. So that certainly can complicate the process unless people have a familiarity with the presentations and also um, uh, able to adopt a logical and methodical approach. So, so do you have a, a, a set approach? I suppose it's, it's probably very different in referral practice because you you know you've seen cases that that uh, um, normally have, have been treated by by a vet before but do you, do you have a, a, a set approach that you would approach all skin cases but if you are suspicious of, of pyoderma and and to rule out um, those uh, potential other other triggers if you if you like first well I guess it, the um, you you ask what is effectively quite a very a broad question because um, pyoderma is traditionally classified into the sort of um, surface, superficial and deep categories. Uh, uh, and it's worth just spending perhaps a, a moment or two considering that at the beginning of this um, podcast. So that is actually um, a histological classification, although people can often um, make those classifications from the clinical presentation. So in a surface pyoderma, the bugs, uh, the staphylococci, typically, are on the very outermost layer of the skin. They're in the sternum corneum, and they are primarily in the interfollicular sternum corneum on the skin surface. And the, the two main entities which we recognise under the heading of surface pyoderma are um, problems in various skin folds, whether that be lip folds, um, body folds, vulval folds, tail folds, facial folds, um, and the like. Obviously, those things often have a breed um, association with uh, anatomy. Uh, and then the hotspot, 
um, the pyotraumatic dermatitis, to give it a more technical name, sometimes called acute moist dermatitis. So those would be two common forms of um, uh, surface pyoderma. And it's not difficult to recognize a fold dermatitis uh, usually, although they're not all necessarily associated just with bacteria. Some have got a bacterial component, some have a malassezia yeast component, some have a, a mixture. The hot spots although they are classified as a surface pyoderma in some textbooks, it is controversial because if we're calling something a pyoderma, that by definition is a cutaneous pyogenic infection. So hotspots are definitely cutaneous and they're definitely pyogenic, but there is a view expressed by some that in those lesions, it's all actually down to self-trauma and the bacterial presence is merely colonization. So if we're talking about colonization, then we shouldn't be naming it in the category of pyoderma. So in some textbooks, you'll see hotspots falling into a sort of pseudo-pyoderma chapter. Um, so it's quite difficult and, and, and arguably unhelpful. And if, if we actually look at some of these studies based on therapy, if we compare in, there's one study which compared the effect of steroid topical versus antibiotic topical versus the combination. The dogs that did the best were those which had the combination of topical, antibiotic and steroid. And if the antibiotics are helping, then I think we can say the bacteria are doing harm, in which case calling it a, a surface pyoderma is uh, appropriate. So hotspots are reasonably straightforward to recognise we have to beware the ones which are not surface as actually a form of presentation where the hotspot is actually a form of deep pyoderma, especially in retrievers, especially in lesions around the neck, especially if the lesions have satellite papules and pustules. But uh, usually a, a true hotspot is straightforward to recognise clinically, as are the fold dermatitis things. Then we have the superficial pyodermas, um, a bacterial folliculitis. So this time the infection is not just on the skin surface in between the hair follicles on the surface. It also extends down into the infundibulum of the intact hair follicle. And in its most obvious form, these are dogs who present with pustules, circumscribed elevations of the skin containing pus. And classically, these are follicular pustules so that we can often see a hair growing out of the center of the pustule because the folliculitis is targeted to that particular follicular um, infundibulum. So the primary lesion is a pustule, often with an erythematous base. Um, but of course, to be, before a pustule is a pustule with circumscribed and obviously pussy head, it is preceded by a papule commonly, and then they commonly evolve into epidermal collarettes. So the um, the challenge from a recognition and diagnosis perspective there for many forms of superficial pyoderma, um, superficial bacterial folliculitis, is that the pustular lesions themselves, the primary lesions, might represent a relatively small proportion of the lesions that we're looking at. So there'll be a lot of papules, a lot of collarettes, and a lot of crusts. So we get a lot of ring-like lesions of the epidermal collarettes as the footprint of the of the uh, previous pustule. And that is something um, which um, uh, can catch out the inexperienced if they're um, recognising the number of pustules are relatively few. The other thing which can be problematical with 
um, superficial paraderma is that some short-coated dogs end up with a moth-eaten appearance over the trunk. So we see that in bulldogs and Weimaraners and boxers and things like that. We've got a very short coat typically and they look moth-eaten. So they don't have the big collarette style circles that you might see in an ab the dog's abdomen. They've just got that scattered, punched out um, moth-eaten alopecia um, as a, a further manifestation of the same thing. So that can be um, challenging to recognize. The um, third category of superficial pyoderma, just for to complicate things again, is the sort of bacterial overgrowth presentation, wherein we've got thickened, lichenified, pigmented skin, something that you would commonly see in a chronic malassezia case. Um, uh, and there are some animals who do exactly that same form of clinical presentation, where the driver is staph without yeast. And it's a form of superficial pyoderma without the intact pustules. They just present with lichenified pigmented areas, commonly in areas like axilla, sternum, ventral neck, um, down the limbs and so forth, uh, frequently in, in allergic dogs. So that can be harder to spot too. So I don't know how long I've been talking for about this, but we've already spent quite a lot of time talking about the different um, surface and superficial pyoderma lesion types um, that we might um, see. And then lastly, from a deep pyoderma presentation perspective, we usually have nodular-type lesions with purulent discharge um, because in deep pyoderma, the infection has extended beyond the intact hair follicle. The hair follicle is ruptured. It has released staphylococci into the surrounding dermis. Um, that's driving an intense pyogranulomatous inflammatory reaction, typically. The hair um, shaft fragments that get released concurrently drive a sterile foreign body pyogranulomatous dermatitis reaction. The sebum that's leaking out into the dermis will be contributing to that as well. And we're into a deeper infection, a much more serious uh, infection, something that can be potentially quite uh, painful, something that's prone to scarring and fibrosis if it's not dealt with quickly and rapidly. So uh, again, a completely different level of of, in, of um, severity, really, uh, usually, especially if the lesions become widespread in, in some breeds. So the spectrum of clinical presentation is, is very wide. So that can make recognition uh, difficult. Uh, there can be overlap with other um, diseases which could present in the same way. And then, of course, we've got the underlying disease um, lesions potentially as well. So do they? Thank you, thank you, Ross. It's a fabulous a, a description of of, of of everything. But um, do, do animals present sort of differently? As in, you know, whether the um, where the lesions are and how necessarily itchy they are, or I, I suppose that like, do you, um, when the when the animals are sort of presented to to the referring vets, is that do you think that puritis is the main reason rather than sort of like loss of loss of hair or recognition of of pustules? Well, if we, if we think specifically in relation to your question about superficial pyoderma, um, then the, the degree of pruritus is highly variable through from almost none to incredibly intense. And um, um, pyoderma can be extremely pruritic in some animals. Uh, and we can see that when we administer um, appropriate and effective systemic antibacterial therapy. So a systemic antibiotic like cephalexin, for example, assuming we have a conventional wild-type susceptible staph pseudintermediates, that can be a tremendous antipyritic drug when given on its own. 
because if all the pruritus is caused by the Staphylococcal infection, and we take away that Staphylococcal infection, then the animal can go from being very pruritic to non-pruritic um, um, uh, in, a, in a very useful uh, useful way. So, and that, I guess we'll talk in detail about therapy later on, but that does lead into problems in that there's a, a great temptation in, in first opinion practice in, in those cases when um, uh, vets see a very itchy dog, the, the instinct might be to reach for an anti-itch product like um, um, prednisolone or an injection of dexamethasone of some formulation. Um, and there are, uh, well, that, that can be problematical for reasons we might get into. Maybe we should get other cases get, get straight into that than than Ross. So, so I suppose that's that's you know it, one of the things that we want to do is is try and um, make a patient's feel more comfortable. I suppose and also probably get confidence from the from the owners as as well um, for that. So so maybe that's one of the reasons why, or a couple of the reasons why we try and uh, or some some of us might try and um, reach for uh, some steroid in, injections. So do you, do you think that? The majority of the cases we should we should hold off first, or, or would you would you do some investigations first? Do you, do you have a do you, do you think we should all I don't know, do you sticky tape um, uh, tests and skin scrapes on on all of these lesions, or do you think that maybe if you do have one of those sort of classical hotspots, and I don't want to go, go back into that potential histological di- uh, um, pathology of it, but um, but do you think most times we should have a, a standard approach to looking at these lesions and trying to do a bit of a, a workup or or go to treat with antibiotics I guess I guess you're, you're sort of um, leading into two two important areas of conversation here and, and, and discussion and perhaps even controversy so do we or do we not give steroids would be the first um, aspect to what you've raised and also what would be appropriate uh, investigations so um, uh, this is one area where it's clear to me from thinking back to my own first opinion practice days, which were a while ago now, uh, and also in conversations with our undergraduate students, um, we have an area here where their report from EMS um, is quite discordant from the approach that they would see us do in our consult room here at the Royal Veterinary College in our referral ivory tower. Um, a situation and the students would commonly actually comment on this they also comment on this in relation to our approach to ear cases which is a, a topic for an, an, another day so um, steroids yes or no in canine pyoderma um, so in a surface pyoderma for example a true hot spot I would argue that steroids are strongly indicated it is really important that that dog gets steroids it's important that, that dog gets systemic steroids and also topical steroid if the, the owner is able to apply it depending on the level of pain and discomfort that the animal is showing. Um, the reason for that is that the self-trauma is considered to be re- very important in the generation of that acute painful um, emergency um, lesion. Um, so stopping that with steroids becomes really important along with clipping and cleansing uh, the area and that might need some chemical restraint depending on the discomfort. The application of the first antiseptic that comes to hand, followed by typically the use of a steroid and fusidic acid topical product on a twice daily basis for five days, along with five um, 
either a you know a sort of steroid shot that will give you a few days cover or five days of oral pred. Um, that should be accompanied by, uh, if it's a, a rump hotspot lesion, a careful inspection of the anal sacs for any anal sacculitis. That should be accompanied by flea treatment in case of a flea allergy trigger for a rump uh, lesion. If we've got hot spots around the neck, we need to be checking in particular for uh, uh, any otitis externa in the ipsilateral ear. So the scratching at the neck might uh, precipitate a hot spot at that site. And if it's a neck lesion as well or a facial lesion, we need to be thinking, could this actually not be a true hot spot? Could it be one of the deep ones with deep pyoderma as indicated by satellite papules and pustules? So for surface pyoderma in the form of hot spots, steroids are indicated. Then when we get into infections of the superficial and deep type, where the infection is extended into the hair follicle infundibulum or beyond in the case of a deep infection, then steroids become more controversial. So if we take the view that Staphylococcus pseudintermediates is a normal commensal organism, for it to set up infection, there has to have been some form of impairment of the skin immune system. And to impair it further with steroids is um, uh, not logical. If we're impairing the body's own defences against the staphylococci, then that is not particularly helpful. So we run the risk of impairing the recovery from infection by giving steroids. Now, a lot of first opinion practitioners will give an arm a shot of steroid on the visit and then antibiotics. And what we don't have is prospective controlled, um, blinded um, uh, clinical trials to show whether that makes a difference in the long-term outcome um, or not. But uh, most dermatology specialists would discourage that approach, even though it would be commonly done in first opinion uh, practice. Do you think, Ross, that uh, topical um, products that have steroids in would be a bit of a, a, a problem um, to use as, as well? So any 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 steroids, it, it doesn't really matter the, the route of administration. Well, the topicals are less, uh, uh, I guess, usually in, in superficial pyodermic cases, the lesions are quite extensive. So it's quite difficult to apply a steroid product topically. I suppose you could use something like a hydrocortisone supinate spray and that you can get quite wide area coverage with that. But that's, yeah, again, that's, it's not something that we would encourage because the other aspect of steroids is, so firstly, there is a chance that we will impair the body's um, immune defense against bacteria and slow the recovery from the pyoderma. Secondly, if we have a dog with pruritus and clear pyoderma lesions, the question becomes is, is this animal only itchy because of the um, presence of the staphylococcal infection or is there an underlying pruritic disease such as very commonly allergy or possibly a parasite infestation? So if we have an animal with widespread lesions of superficial pyoderma, um, if this animal's got a pyoderma secondary to something metabolic like hypothyroidism, um, for example, um, then um, when we treat the pyoderma, all the pruritus will have gone. Um, so animals with metabolic or idiopathic reasons for relapsing superficial pyoderma, they should be non-pruritic once we've given successful antibacterial therapy. If, on the other hand, we've got a dog with underlying allergy, atopic dermatitis, 
uh, perhaps with a food component or not, perhaps with fleas or whatever, then those animals, uh, once we treat the pyoderma successfully, the pruritus is likely to persist. We can see that the lesions of the papules, the pustules, the collarettes um, are all um, um, are all um, are gone, but the animal is still red and itchy. And that's very diagnostically informative. Now, of course, particularly in the first opinion situation, if we're going to be giving a relatively moderately expensive to, depending on your point of view, a highly expensive um, antibiotic for three weeks and animals still itching, there's a potential for a shouting match from the, a disgruntled owner unless they're on board with the plan of here we have a coherent logical process whereby we're going to remove this all the secondary infections first and see what we're left with. Um, and um, so an extensive pyoderma Antibiotics only will maximise the chance of antibiotic treatment working as effectively and as, as fast as possible, removing the um, in, in infection, um, and then we can see what we're left with. And then we need a good um, communication with the owner at the beginning. We need to in get that owner to engage with the plan. We need that owner to come back and ideally, if possible, have continuity with the same um, veterinary surgeon, you know, giving the same message obviously not always easy in every um, practice but um, if we have that continuity then that is really helpful so now madam the antibiotic has removed all the spots but now we can see the dog is still itchy and the, the redness in particular is on the face and the ears and the feet and this would make us believe now that the reason your dog is prone to this infection is it has an allergy and now we need to think about addressing that so um um and I, I guess it's probably worth seeing at this point in time is that one of the things I was, I was starting to get more interested in dermatology, having moved from farm to small animal practice many years ago now. One of the things I struggled with, because I had heard it said by dermatology specialists that steroids were not a great thing in animals with pyoderma. Uh, and I became hesitant about giving allergic dogs steroids to control their to control their allergy knowing that they had a common and frequent tendency to a secondary pyoderma but what i came to appreciate after a bit of time is that there's there's two aspects to this so in an allergic dog with pyoderma if we give antibiotics alone we will remove the pyoderma component as fast as possible and the most effectively then once the pyoderma is gone we've got to get in there and control the allergy and that might well be with steroids, because if we don't control the allergy, it is very common that the pyoderma will come back. Three quarters of atopic dogs get pyoderma to a greater or lesser extent. One third of them get malassezia dermatitis to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, and controlling that allergic inflammation is key for, in those animals for, to try and reduce and limit the tendency for the relapsing pyoderma. So step one, use an antibiotic to clear the, 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 the um, pyoderma uh, and, and, and then to see the uncomplicated allergy below. And then step two is we control the uncomplicated allergy with prednisolone or oclocitinib or cyclosporin or lokivetmab or, and, and so it goes on. But certainly failure to control that allergic pruritus will, uh, and inflammation in the skin will lead commonly to a relapse of the us, how long do you expect to see some sort of improvement or how long would you start with uh, with antibiotics sort of for to control that initial 
pyoderma i know that's probably like how long is a piece of string but do you have like a an idea or, or what you would you would tell in this yeah sure enough yeah in a, in a superficial pyoderma case you'd you'd be looking to be seeing clear benefit within 10 maximum 14 days but we should always in superficial pyoderma again you can say where is the evidence to, to say that this is correct but the dogma is in superficial pyoderma that we treat for seven to ten days past clinical cure in case of low-grade microscopical persistent bacterial folliculitis that we can't detect clinically so if it takes um, 10 days to have the dog looking pretty good we give another 10 days so we end up with a three-week course and and that and that's is that the hard thing sorry sorry is that the hard thing do you think to tell people that yes mm -hmm. things have cleared up actually you need to go beyond that and that's where that that continuity and that sort of you know yeah there's plenty of owners who are very uneasy about that because they're used to going to their um their general medical practitioner who uh, is likely to be giving them a three to five day course of antibiotics depending on the infection so they're it is not unusual for pet owners to be unaccustomed to that duration of antibacterial therapy. Um, uh, and, of course, they also might be wincing at the price, depending on which antibiotic is being used um, and the size of their dog. Um, so, uh, but it, uh, it's um, um, one of my colleagues, Anka Hendricks, had a, a student previously who investigated this and showed quite... Um, quite some scary numbers in reviewing what, what happens in first opinion practice uh, and um, and in what a specialist in their ivory tower would consider to be a treatment course of being inappropriately short with antibiotics and pyoderma was quite commonplace in first opinion practice. Um, and, and of course the reasons for that are multiple and, and absolutely not necessarily any reflection on the veterinary surgeon's proposals to begin with. It can in some cases simply be the fact that the vet has said one thing and the owner has done another. Uh, so that's, I think one, one uh, of our colleagues has looked into that as well, like how many how many medications that um, are prescribed by vets will actually be be used by owners. I suppose that's a separate that's a separate um, that's a separate point for sure. But when you're prescribing antibiotics, mm -hmm. is there any reason to give anything else apart from cephalexin for these cases? Well. Um, so um, if we have superficial pyoderma, where um, I guess the first question. So let's go back. Um, let's go back uh, thirty years. So thirty years ago, the dogma was that every superficial pyoderma case would receive systemic oral uh, antibiotics, and um, around the nineteen nineties, those are the beginnings of the uh, first few reports of topical therapy being used instead of systemic antibacterial for superficial pyoderma. And one of the first publications, well, I think the first that I'm aware of, came from Japan, looked at a chlorhexidine product. Um, one of the very few around that time was also done uh, by Annette Loeffler as a, her residency project when she was here and as a resident. Um, uh, and in conjunction with one of the pharmaceutical companies, we looked at a 3% chlorhexidine shampoo which we ran against uh, a benzyl peroxide product was available at that time. And um, Aneta was able to show that a number of dogs who have superficial pyoderma can respond to topical therapy only with things like chlorhexidine or chlorhexidine combined with myconazole. And um, 
that was the beginnings, if you like, of a, a potential to evolve a, away from relying purely on systemic antibacterial therapy for superficial pyoderma. Um, now, if we have a Newfoundland, we can forget chlorhexidine shampoo for its pyoderma. It's just not going to work. If we have a, a, a lady or a, who can't do it or a dog who won't let them and bathe them um, effectively, then we can't do it. If it's really severe, we need an oral. But for mild cases, it is now with, um, if we have compliant owners, that's an if, but if we have compliant owners who are prepared to accept that the absolute guarantee of success might not be there, if you have a client who's going to slash your tires and pan all your windows in, if the dog's not better in 10 days, then topical therapy is not the way to go. But if we have someone who understands that we now live in a climate of uh, antibiotic resistance and where it is best to try and limit antibiotic use, then uh, topical therapy with um, various forms of antiseptic products, we most usually would use chlorhexidine products either than shampoo or uh, foam mousse um, uh, formulations and there are other products as well which some people prefer but topical therapy alone might be sufficient for the mild case in a short to medium coated dog if the lesions are in relatively glabrous areas like groin and if we've got a motivated compliant owner who will do it um, much more reliable of course would be a systemic antibiotic and then we get into a consideration of responsible antibiotic prescribing so um, uh, ISCADE, for example, a few years ago produced a useful document where they talked about tier one and tier two antibiotics. So tier one antibiotics for superficial pyoderma, the things that we would use um, as perhaps even empirical therapy without a culture. Um, culture is never contraindicated, but of course some owners might be a little... Uh, uneasy at the cost of culture but um, if we administer um, an antibiotic treatment empirically as a first line product then something like clindamycin is considered to be uh, appropriate by ISCADE. Cephalexin is also considered to be appropriate so would coamoxiclav be as well. Um, we also would have the potential to consider uh, trimethoprim uh, sulfonamide um, products although I would have to say that uh, I'm not quite in the group of veterinary practitioners who've decided that they'll never, ever, ever give that class of um, antibiotic to a dog ever again, ever. But I absolutely understand why some people have got there, given the potential for uh, side effects, particularly serious side effects, particularly when we're giving more prolonged courses of three weeks. Um, and the like. So I prefer to avoid potentiated sulfonamides, although they're licensed and inexpensive. Too many side effects for my liking unless we're um, forced to go there with uh, multi-drug resistance. Um, so in, over the years, I suppose, um, uh, cephalexin has been the thing that um, we would have used most often. It is quite broad spectrum. It is, of course, something that will select for MR, staphylococci, methicillin-resistant staphylococci. If we were in Scandinavia, there would be an insistence from the veterinary authorities that clindamycin would be given first um, because of its more narrow spectrum. Because if it's staph, and we've done cytology and seen cocci, and it's staph, then a narrow-spectrum antibiotic active against gram-positive cocci um, is 
intuitive. Is there a reason why we don't use clindamycin as a first uh, a first line, or in the UK, was it is it quite regional or or? or? Uh, yeah, I think the last the last figures I remember from our lab is about sixteen percent are resistant to uh, of staphylococci are resistant to conventional wild type staphylococci, MS, methicillin susceptible staphylococcus pseudintermediates, about 16% are resistant to clindamycin. So one in six is going to fail. Uh, and of course, you're 10 to 14 to 20 days in before you find that out and the client's paid out for the drug and animals know better uh, and it still is itchy and it's... <laughs> um, there's, you know, there's a potential for um, dissatisfaction that has to be dealt with and addressed. So, uh, and it, so I suppose, I suppose, with that, apart from the Scandinavian countries, do you know of other? See, would would North America and say Australasia be very similar to using cephalexin? Then, if they don't have sort of those those restrictions about um, about antibiotic use, or, or is that, or do you think certain people just choose coamoxiclav or trimethoprim sulfonamide? Yeah, chlorimoxiclav is it's an interesting topic as well. Um, so, um, uh, so firstly, I, I'm very hazy in what is done in Australasia because I've never practiced there and I've never visited there. North America, I know there's a lot of cephalosporin use as a matter of um, uh, routine. Um, so, um, uh, so a lot of cephalosporin use is a matter of routine um, over there um, um, as well. Uh, so. Uh, Chlormoxiclav is an interesting thing. If you go to studies of uh, registration for new antibiotic products, and, and in most recent times that has been fluoroquinolones, um, all the pharmaceutical companies use Chlormoxiclav as their licensed positive control comparator. And the reason they do this is because they know that the sensitivity or the efficacy rate at label dose over a, a three-week to four-week protocol is going to be of the order of 75%. And let's face it, if we want a new product, it's got to be better than that, ideally, if we're going to put a label claim of uh, on it for superficial pyoderma. And these are in cases of pyoderma where the isolated organism is in the laboratory is reportedly susceptible to a chlormoxiclav, yet in one in four cases we have treatment failure. In three and four cases, we have success, but in one and four, we've got treatment failure. And if you have a, depending on if you're a cup half full, cup half empty sort of person, um, you might argue that one in four treatment failures for the money that's been spent on a three-week course failing, then again, we're back to dissatisfied clients. So um, the question becomes twofold. Well, so the first question is, why is that? Uh, and the theory is that the clavulanate, which is incorporated in that combination product, has pharmacokinetics, which means that it's in and out of the skin faster than the uh, amoxicillin. So the amoxicillin is left unprotected to, um, to beta-lactamase penicillinase from the staph. So staph pseudintermediates is very commonly a penicillinase producer. The clavulanate should bind that penicillinase and allow the amoxicillin amoxicillin to be effective but if it's not there or gone then we might have treatment failure so that's one possible explanation for why we have 100% in vitro reports of efficacy for chlormoxiclav in traditional staphylococci pathogenic staphylococci from dogs but uh, only a 75% 
efficacy um, rate. So for that reason, I personally prefer to avoid coamoxiclav for straightforward staphylococcal infections and would much rather use cephalexin because the figure of cephalexin is, in terms of efficacy, is a bit higher than the 75 um, uh, percent. But coamoxiclav is very popular in first opinion practice. It is licensed for that purpose, it appears in review articles and consensus guideline type publications as being something that's um, um, appropriate um, uh, to give. But certainly something like um, if clindamycin, if you've done a culture, I think clindamycin is shown to be effective uh, in the culture and there's no resistance or reducible resistance, then um, it's um, a, valid, a valid thing to give. And arguably, because of its narrower spectrum, um, uh, has some um, advantages. A lot of the cases that we get at RVC, they've had lots of antibiotics by the time we see them. And, and, and sometimes we have to be going for things that are a little more. Um, uh, can, can I ask, Russ, see, with, with that, would you... Because kind of, as you say, sort of by definition, we're talking about a staphylococcal infection, although there, there can be other <clears throat> organisms sort of involved, but more more fungal. Do you think that, it, it you know, um, as far as sort of culturing initially, it's probably not necessary in given empirical therapy, but at what point would you suggest, so, so potentially, because I suppose this all get, gets quite confounding, doesn't it, if there's a... Um, uh, um, atopic dermatitis sort of underlying cause and the and the patient gets recurrent sort of pyodermas is the propensity of some people to then like think about switching an antibiotic without a culture or would you would you always say continue with a with a cephalexin um, and get a culture at that point and only change it sort of based on on that because it's unlikely to be something that is that is resistant yeah, so I guess what you're really broadly asking is when when should we be doing bacterial cultural sensitivity in around pyoderma cases? So um, I suppose that the, the common test that we mm, pretty much always do in an animal with a pyoderma or suspect pyoderma is we would do here at RVC, we do cytology. Now, I know from student uh, um, final year student projects on uh, referred cases that the amount of cytology done in pyoderma lesions in first opinion practice is well, obviously varies from practice to practice and some do it regularly. Other practices uh, never do it. But if we see a lesion that looks like pyoderma, we're going to do cytology. So um, if it's a exudative surface pyoderma or fold thing, we'll do impression smears to check that it is bacterial and um, coccus and not yeast, um, for example, or rods, which might change some of the things we do occasionally. If we've got superficial pyoderma, then ideally you'd identify an intact pustule, stick a small needle in it, dab the slide on it, diff quick stain and have a look. And you'd expect to see degenerate neutrophils and cocci um, scattered amongst that. And that would support the clinical um, diagnosis of pyoderma and would give you justification uh, for administering um, either topical antibacterial therapy, as we've discussed, or um, uh, a systemic. If we saw rods in that, and I remember seeing a, a dog with uh, generalized uh, juvenile onset, generalized dermatocosis, 
which had extensive pustular lesions representing a secondary superficial pyoderma. And in cytology from those pustules, we had uh, uh, purely rods. And in culture, we had pseudomonas. So that, that particular French bulldog had a pseudomonas pyoderma. And of course, once we're into the gram-negative rods, we get to the point where it's very difficult to predict what antibiotics would be um, effective and we need a culture. So in a first presentation with us where we were seeing a superficial pyoderma or DPAR and we saw rods, we would absolutely be encouraging the owner to please invest in the, the, uh, the fees for that to, to guide future antibacterial therapy because it's more difficult with rods to know what's going to work. Um, commonly, we would actually start something if we saw rods in a deep pyoderma case waiting for that culture, so a few days of treatment till we get the result through. And commonly, if we're seeing rods in deep pyoderma, we're going to start thinking about things like fluoroquinolones, which would be sort of tier two in um, um, the sort of ISCADE guidelines for antibiotic choice um, in, uh, in, in pyoderma. So anything, anything with deep pyoderma lesions where the treatment is likely to be prolonged and therefore expensive, anything with deep lesions where the amount of second, uh, concurrent infection with gram-negative rods is more frequent, then absolutely um, a cultural sensitivity is indicated. Um, in a superficial pyoderma case that has not responded to rational therapy well within two weeks, then we need to think about doing a, a, a culture. Then if it's a case which is continuing to relapse, where the animals had lots of cycles of antibiotics, then we have to be more concerned about the possibility of being selecting for resistant organisms. And then we might need to think about um, culture. Um, like I've said already, the guidelines would say that a cultural sensitivity is never contraindicated in the current climate of the scrutiny of the veterinary profession over responsible prescribing. Um, um, uh, so um, if the client's prepared to fund it, it can be done in visit one so that we can review that we're giving the, the correct antibiotic. The BVA guideline headline here would be the right drug for the right bug. So we've got a culture that says X is likely to work, therefore we're justified in, 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 in using it. So deep cases routinely, anything with rods and cytology routinely, anything that's not responding well or continuing to relapse. And, and I guess that just brings us as an aside into this whole concept of in the problem case, we do need to differentiate between pyoderma cases which are persisting from those which are relapsing. Because there are quite a lot of dogs who we can give, uh, say, an oral antibiotic X, and we get an excellent response to therapy. We go for seven to 10 days past cure. We stop the treatment. And two to three weeks or two to three months later, the pyoderma is back again. We give the same drug again and it clears beautifully and then it relapses. So that would be the um, recurrent case, which needs to be differentiated from the persistent case where actually we're giving the drugs and it's never really properly going away. Because in the persistent case, we are more likely to be dealing with a resistant bacterium or possibly a compliance issue where the owner is not giving the stuff or there's a mistake in dosing or um, um, uh, something like that. You know, so we're going slightly sort of backwards here, but um, as, as far as sort of investigation goes, because you, you touched on, on sticking needles in, in pustules and having a look at that mm. on, under a microscope, but would you, um, would, would 
we do you do a sticky tape like prep of of of, uh, of these lesions or or what what do you actually do when you investigate them ross yeah so i guess it it depends on the lesion type and what what, what we're faced with so if we have a suspect pyoderma case that's presenting with intact pustules then we'll go straight for the pustule and we'll prick the pustule open and dab the slide on and, and look at the contents that way the point being that um in one percent or so of cases those pustules will not actually represent an infectious etiology they may be a sterile pustular disease such as pemphigus foliaceus or some of the sterile neutrophilic and eosinophilic pustular diseases that occasionally present or drug reactions or something like that. So they are, they are the minority, but they certainly do occur. Um, if the we are struggling to find intact pustules, if we've got collarettes, then if you can find the peeling edge of an epidermal collarette and peel it back and see a little moist erosion, then dabbing a slide on directly to that will often show neutrophils and cocci and can be supportive. Similarly, peeling back crust and dabbing slide on to beneath a crusted area um, um, can also be an alternative. You can do tape strip in those sites too, but if it's moist enough uh, and the anatomy allows a direct application of the slide, then that's um, a good way to do it. But you certainly can tape strip those um, too. Tape strips we use more commonly for looking for uh, microbes in the sort of bacterial overgrowth form of superficial pyoderma where they're lichenified and hyperpigmented. Um, tip strips are good in things like toe webs and folds for recovering the microbial population, if any, uh, and that could be bacteria, um, cocci or rods, um, or malassezia or, or, uh, or a combination. So it, it really depends on the nature of the lesion and where it is. Furuncles in deep pyoderma where there's a purulent exudate coming out then, um, uh, sort of freshly exuded pus, again, a direct application of a slide can be um, uh, a good way of doing that. And just when we're on the theme of microscopy, um, a very common trigger of uh, superficial pyoderma in first opinion practice can be flea bites and flea allergy. So coat brushing f to look for evidence of flea infestation um, should be uh, routine. Uh, in any animal with a f inflammatory folliculitis, so superficial and especially deep pyoderma, uh, in deep pyoderma, the commonest reason that we see in our consult room here at RVC for deep pyoderma is demodicosis. So it is absolutely critical that pyoderma dogs um, have hair plucks and or skin scrapes to look for um, uh, demodex because if we're talking about shouting clients, um, that is uh, one diagnosis that we sometimes make, which in animals who have persistent or relapsing pyoderma where mm, shouting <laughs> is usually on the agenda sooner or later when owners start to think that maybe that should have been picked up at the beginning of an animal's uh, presentation and, and not not after it's been established for a long um, period of time. Obviously, the widespread use of isoxazolines is leading to a reduction in cases of demodicosis that are out there, but it's um, uh, not every dog gets an isoxazoline, uh, and it's uh, a very important thing to check for in terms of basic underlying um, triggers. Well, that, that's uh, that, that's great, uh, Ross. Thank you, thank you very much for that. But um, there was one question I was I was thinking about that uh, I don't know whether I got I got told this uh, once or, or who told it. But do people use antibiotics in a in a in a pulse therapy sort of way, or is that was that do you think because of underlying sort of atopic disease, the pyoderma reappear, or they haven't sort of treated it uh, appropriately? 
Well, I, I guess it depends what you mean by pulse, because I guess pulse to me implies that it's something where you're um, two days on, five days off type of thing that we might use. Um, or we say, for example, pulse, week on, week off would be the licensed label dose uses for hydroconazole in, in, in feline dermatophytosis caused by Microsporum mechanis. And that, that's fine because the product's uh, um, so lipophilic that it hangs around in the skin and you get good effective antimicrobial levels using a protocol like that. There have been occasions in the past with idiopathic recurrent um, superficial and particularly deep pyedema where people have talked about weekend therapy with oral antibiotics. That has really gone right out of fashion with the emergence and, and now common recognition of methicillin-resistant staph pseudintermediates as a, as a challenge to us in, in dealing with um, canine pyedema. The, the, the percentage of isolates in um, which we have which are of MR type in the UK currently are certainly far lower than what's been described in some of the referral centres in North America and in Italy and in Germany and so forth. But we certainly do have those. And pulse treatment two days on, five days off, something like that is now very heavily discouraged. And we would much rather try and prevent relapsing um, um, pyoderma in cases like that, firstly by a as thorough and careful and complete a search for and correction of where possible of the underlying triggering uh, disease. And whilst we're trying to achieve that, or if we have failed to achieve that, then regular topical therapy uh, can be is far with an antiseptic product like chlorhexidine based products would be far preferable to a pulse antibiotic regime. Now we may of course, by default end up using repeated cycles of antibiotic treatment, but hopefully with the sort of long enough to we get clinical cure plus seven to 10 days past cure and superficial, 14 days past cure and deep, you know, so you might, if you're using that, you might end up giving a month or so of antibiotic treatment in an animal who continues to relapse and cycles of that. But I wouldn't really call that a pulse in my own mind. I wouldn't use that as a pulse description. That's just another cycle of a hopefully effective therapy at removing the uh, infection whilst we continue to think about why the animal is um, prone to that uh, infection. And uh, and just a, a couple of other questions, Ross, before, before maybe we wrap things up. I was just wondering whether what what is necessary change with the treatment of pyoderma since you uh, since you started looking into it, or do you think there's been sort of significant uh, advances with our understanding or, or treatment? of this? Well, I guess if I think back to when I was in general practice in the 1980s, I, I would commonly use erythromycin for the treatment of canine pyoderma as a, a macrolide type drug, narrow spectrum, inexpensive, um, frequently active against normal staphylococci. Um, erythromycin has pretty much disappeared. It's not licensed um, as far as I'm aware for canine pyoderma, certainly not in UK. Uh, and there was enough vomiting uh, with that drug to, again, create potential um, client um, conflict. Um, so we've moved away from erythromycin has been mentioned as a as a first line. I guess we would now use lincomycin if we wanted to, uh, no, not lincomycin, so it's gone too, but clindamycin if we wanted to go down that route. I guess in my time in practice, we've seen the emergence of the fluoroquinolone class of antibiotics, which would be useful for deep infection cases with uh, gram-negative pathogens in particular, and also good penetration into fibrotic 
areas, albeit they come with the politics of them being a reserved antibiotic that we should only use when indicated and ideally we're uh, driven by culture. Sevovacin has also appeared as a, um, a product which, um, as a new product in, in the time that I've been involved in, in, in veterinary practice. Um, and obviously we have the convenience of the long-acting injection, although um, in the ISCADE guidelines there was quite a lot of debate as to what the classification of that particular antibiotic should be. Is it tier one? Um, uh, and therefore a first-line treatment, or should it be reserved for very problem cases? And the, the problem there is the the long tail of this third-generation cephalosporin molecule wearing off where the um, bacteriological theorists worry about the possibility of selecting for mutant um, uh, bacteria, resistant bacteria, um, because of the long uh, wearing off tail as it, as when, when the course of, of injection is, 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 is finished. That long tail you don't get with things like oral cephalexin, where the drug is in, gets up to a high level, and then goes right down out again uh, quite um, quickly. So there's certainly been that change in the, the antibiotics that we, that we have and which we use. Um, cephalexin has been something which has been in common use for pyoderma since the 1980s, so that, that remains the same. Um, the other thing, of course, the big the big change for me would be the the now the impetus and drive to try and use a topical um, antiseptic product instead of an oral antibiotic, wherever possible, uh, and clinical trials and clinical experience that indicates that that can be effective in selected cases with selected owners who are compliant and diligent uh, and dedicated in short coated animals um, who are also uh, uh, compliant. Do you, do you see that there might be changes in the in the in the future, or do you, do you think in thirty years' time um, that it will be on a? You know, we're talking about the, the the same sort of thing, or do you think there will be advances, or if so, where, where, where do you think we should have advances? Mm, well, I guess the there's a, a I suppose one of the things that might be on the horizon is increasing restriction on the veterinary prescribing of antibiotics. So I think it was in 2009 that the chief medical officer in the UK specified that all veterinary fluoroquinolone and cephalosporin use should be banned. So if that were ever implemented, that would be quite challenging um, um, uh, for us. Uh, clearly, the development of new antibiotic drug classes um, would be an important development. But from what I'm led to understand, there are few of those in the human pharmacy um, pipe discovery uh, pipeline, and I guess the, the rationale for that is that if an anti if an animal health company or a human health company, pharmaceutical company were to develop a really effective new class of antibiotics, all the regulators would be saying don't use it, uh, which means that the, the the company who developed it would be unlikely to recoup their the, the costs they've invested in its development unless there was someone other than the shareholders um, funding that. So uh, it's difficult to imagine that the veterinary profession is going to get easy access in the event of new antibiotic drug classes being launched and um, uh, developed. We are likely to be well down the chain and might even be prohibited from using them. So I guess the, the, the need to um, show uh, responsible antibiotic use wherever possible is, is important if we're going to um, prevent the uh, the regulators and the politicians from 
impairing our access to these important um, drugs. And uh, and as far as sort of um, potential lookalikes or, or say traps for young players, do you, do you think that a um, a, thumb, a thorough dermatological assessment and use some investigation sort of should um, hopefully prevent any um, I don't know not, not misses but I suppose um, you know not necessarily recognizing demodex or um, not recognizing that there might be a gram negative component do you think there, there are any particular um, like issues with with diagnosing sort of pyoderma or, or people get go down a different path than they should yeah i guess one of the things that we quite um commonly see here at rvc is westies with pododemidicosis so uh, most westies with pododemidicosis have some degree of concurrent pyoderma sometimes it's a very marked and severe uh, deep pyoderma and when many uh, first opinion practitioners see a westie with red feet they're immediately thinking down the allergic skin disease route, which is not unreasonable. But of course, it's important to um, remember that red feet may well be a manifestation of something like atopic dermatitis, very prevalent in the Westies. We might get that in a, usually in a milder form seasonally in animals who've got harvest mites, depending on the geog- geography of the of the practice. Um, malassezia commonly will cause red feet and malassezia is frequent in Westies too. So that can be a, a fa- factor in interdigital inflammation and Westies are also really prone to demodicosis, and sometimes demodex is only in the feet. Um, and um, the when when one of um, our students who's now a neurology resident uh, did his final year project, I had him review ninety five referred cases of uh, demodicosis to RVC over about ten years or so, and nearly all the Westies with pododemodicosis that came in came in undiagnosed. They weren't recognised as having demodicosis. So anything involving redness of the skin uh, should prompt tests for demodicosis in a dog. Anything involving um, alopecia should involve tests for demodicosis in a dog. Anything involving pyoderma, superficial or deep, should should trigger tests for demodicosis. Any dog with comedones, blackheads or follicular casts um, should have tests um, for um, uh, demodicosis, and especially around the feet, because that can be a, a, an area where people can get caught out. Well, I, I think um, Ross, maybe we should wrap it up there, unless you think we've um, we've missed out a, a chunk of, uh, of of discussion topics. I think I think regarding pyoderma, that is. Yeah, well, hopefully we've um, um, covered some topics that will be of interest and use. No, for sure, for sure. So, um, so many thanks, Ross, and and what would, um, and, uh, and so we'll we'll wrap it up there. So, so thank you very much for your time, and thank you to uh, everyone who's listening. Um, so if you can, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you can leave us a review, a five star review on Apple Podcast or Acast, wherever you get your podcast, that would be great. And tell your friends or vet friends or others. We'll play some show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical podcast into your search and of choice it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions please get in touch you can either email thebarfield.rvc.ac.uk or you can tweet at Don Barfield until next time bye bye